I, I came in this week after VBS and uh, walked in, and my office had been closed off with a wall and a plant sitting in front of it. And I was afraid the elders had made a decision I wasn't aware of. I'm like, wow. And so I, I took a picture, and I'm like, we got some funny people in this building. Uh, it is a joy to uh, work here at Hendersonville. Uh, you know, among the incredible privileges that we have at our church is just so many gifted people who can preach. Uh, I mean, just we're overflowing with talent. Uh, among those that uh, we have who can both preach and teach in, in just wonderful ways is Brother Rodney Cloud. Uh, Dr. Cloud has been a blessing to this church for a long... What year did you come, Brother Rodney? 93. I mean, I want you all to think about that. That is now, what, 30 years of blessing us here with uh, lessons and sermons and uh, personal counsel. And Brother Rodney's going to be sharing a lesson next Sunday. And he's going to bless us richly in that. And looking forward to that. He's wanted to do that and was concerned a little bit because of some back problems. And, and, uh, but the doctor gave him a big thumbs up. And so we're excited about that. And so we look forward to that next Sunday. A lot going on here at Hendersonville. Of course, today is Father's Day. And uh, I, let, let me say a word about both Father's Day and Mother's Day. Those can be complicated holidays. Because not everybody was blessed with a good mother. Not everybody was blessed with a, with a godly father. Uh, but let me just say a word about that. Uh, ultimately, all of us are blessed with the greatest of mothers because there are motherly qualities that God possesses. He was a mother to Israel. He's a mother to us. There's also, of course, the fatherly qualities of God. He's the perfect heavenly father. And so whether you were blessed with a, you know, wonderful earthly father or mother, uh, I know that we're, we're blessed with the perfect heavenly father. But uh, let's honor all of our fathers. Would y'all join me in, in honoring our fathers this morning? You know you've arrived as a father when your son takes you out to eat and when the waiter says, how many tickets? And he says, one. And you're like, yes! Wow, this is so cool. And John, of course, got his. John, I got to go to Carabas Friday night. And uh, our oldest son took us out and paid for it. Boy, that was wonderful. As I thought about it being Father's Day, I thought, you know, let's not burden our fathers too much and give them a test today. So I thought, we're just going to suspend the test for Father's Day. And then I said, no, we're not. No, we're not. Dads need to be held accountable. So you're going to see something, something familiar in our questions today. Question number one. In what chapter of Matthew do you find over 40 fathers listed? I mean, what, 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 where do we find it? Yeah, in one, genealogy of Jesus. You know, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac father of Jacob, Jacob father of Judah, and right on down the line. And so you have over 40 fathers listed there. I mean, Matthew begins with a lot of dads. And so this theme of fatherhood comes through. Question number two, in what chapter do you find the words, Our Father in Heaven? Now again, I've been pushing the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Anybody remember which one the, the, the Lord's Prayer is found in? 
Chapter 6, yeah, it's found in chapter 6, our Father in heaven. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. Question number 3, name one chapter where the name of James and John's father is mentioned. Uh, he's mentioned actually in a couple of places, maybe even in another one in the next week or two. I've, I've not looked uh, further ahead in Matthew. Uh, anybody, first of all, what was James and John's father's name? Zebedee, yeah, wonderful. And he is found in, in, in chapter 4 in the calling of James and John, and then in chapter 10 when Jesus picks the 12 apostles, picks the names of James and John. Question number 4, in what chapter does a father ask Jesus to cast out a demon from his son? And I know kind of like a week ago when I said about Stan, Stan, I hope they get this one. I hope you get the, last week's lesson coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, chapter 17, a father said, I brought him to your, your, your disciples. They couldn't do anything. Could you do it? And Jesus talked about the power of faith. And then question number five, name one chapter where Jesus calls God Father. And let me give you a hint. Over half of them, from chapter 1 through chapter 17, Jesus calls God Father. So you got over a 50% chance. You got that one in your mind? Get a chapter in your mind. Get a chapter in your mind. And then compare it to this list. 5, 6, 7, 10, 11, 12, 13, 15, and 16. How many of you got it? Boy, if you didn't, we're going... Okay, during the invitation, come forward. Just come on. We're in Matthew 18 today. Matthew 18 is, is an incredibly important chapter, uh, especially for the church. Uh, one of the things you find about Matthew 18 is it's similar to uh, the chapter we looked at uh, a couple of weeks ago in chapter 15. One of the things when we got to chapter 15 that I pointed out is that Matthew, and, and this is true of most of our biblical writers, they wrote in highly complicated fashion. I mean, there are just layers and layers and layers of, of meaning and design in these various biblical writings. Matthew is no different than that. And so here he uses a chiasma to talk about the role of the Canaanite woman and how that she had great faith. The only person mentioned in the entire book of Matthew who had great faith, and she's a Canaanite, the enemies of God's people, and yet she comes to the greatest of faith in the book of Matthew. Uses chiasm to teach us that. Well, there's another uh, instrument that Matthew uses, and, and, and that is where he basically breaks the teachings of Jesus into these five big blocks of teaching. Now, if you buy a commentary on Matthew and begin to read it, it will tell you that in many ways, Matthew presents Jesus as the new Moses. There's a reason that Matthew 5 begins, Jesus went up on a mountain. Because what happened to Moses when he got to Sinai? He went up on a mountain. And he got the law of God. Jesus gives them the, the, the new covenant. I mean, you get a lot of this comparison of Jesus and Moses because Jesus is, in fact, the prophet likened to Moses that was to come. But these five blocks of material has a phrase that sets them apart. Okay? Again, anybody who studied Matthew knows these five blocks. Uh, the first one at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus finished. Notice the language there. When Jesus finished these sayings. Number two, when Jesus had finished instructing the twelve. Number three, and when Jesus had finished these parables. Chapter 13 in the famous parable text. Today, now when Jesus had finished these saying, which whoever divided the Bible up should have kept verse 1 of 19 with verse 18. I mean, they kind of messed that up. By the way, New Testament 
inspired writers did not divide up the text. Okay, this was done many, many centuries later. And then the last one is, is number five there is in, at the beginning of chapter 26 when Jesus had finished all of these things. And so you have these five large blocks of teaching that kind of correspond to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. You know, we have the five books of Moses, five blocks of teachings of Jesus. Again, a prophet likened to Moses. But number 18, chapter 18 is fascinating because in this chapter, Jesus deals of all things with how to live together as his disciples. And let me tell you, that can be tough. That can be incredibly tough. I mean, here's Jesus instructing basically the 12 and others who are following him. And you think about how that among them, there was a lot of diversity. You had fishermen. You, you, you had people who, who were tax collectors. You had a man who was a zealot. You had the far left. You had the far right. Most of them now were Galileans, with the exception of Judas, who was from Carioth. But, I mean, here were guys very different from each other. And you see their differences coming through in the text. But let me tell you something. We're far more varied than they were here in this auditorium this morning. Now, racially varied, not as much. Hendersonville is not a racially diverse community. Where June and I live in Madison, it's, it's quite different. But not so much here in Hendersonville. But we're still diverse. Just out of curiosity, let's do a survey. How many of y'all were born and raised either in Hendersonville or Sumner County? Raise your hands. I want y'all to look out. Less than half. All right, let, let's, let's see. How many of you uh, were, were born in Kentucky? Okay, good smattering of Kentucky people in here. How many are from Alabama? All right, not many, isn't that good? Whoo, man. Ah, and one of them leads our worship, one's an elder. I don't know what to think about that. All right, how many are from Georgia? Okay, a handful from Georgia. West Virginia. Brian, are you the only one from West Virginia? Anybody else? <laughs> the other one left? All right. Uh, how many from Ohio? Yeah, we've got several from Ohio. All right, don't, don't let me down. How many from Mississippi? <laughs> All right. Where's Tony at? I was expecting Tony. Rick, yeah, we got Rick way up here, I tell you. Wow. Okay, that's, that's a little discouraging. Uh, watch this. How many from Colorado? All right, we got Colorado. I mean, we got people all over the place. If I didn't call your state, I apologize for that. But we have a lot of diversity. We have diversity educationally. We have uh, diversity in economics. Uh, we, we bring a lot of diversity to our church family. And because of that, diversity tends to create at time conflict. And, and so Jesus, when you get to Matthew 18, says, Can I tell you a little bit about how to deal with conflict in the church among my disciples? And he begins with a, of all questions, one that just slaps some of us in the face. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Boy, how many times have we rephrased that one? Who, who's the leader of the church? I mean, I came, by the way, I came to Hendersonville, and one of the questions I asked was, who's the head elder? And Clyde raised his hand, and David raised his hand. 
y'all don't know their last name's Head. Okay, come on, help me out here. Of course they're Head Elders, you know. Uh, we had Head the Elder and Head the Younger, you know. But, but seriously, oftentimes in churches, you know, who, who's kind of the leader in the church? Uh, who's the leader in the Sunday school class? These can cause conflicts. Uh, oftentimes conflicts. Paul, in writing to the Philippians, said there's two sisters there, and Iodia and Syntyche, and man, they're at conflict with one another. And, and Paul says, y'all need to somehow reconcile with each other. The church always deals with struggles. And one of the big ones is, who, who, who's leading it? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? And by the way, the reason Jesus addresses this is because on the way to Capernaum, he hears the apostles back there arguing. And so he says to them, what were you arguing about on the road? And boy, they're tight-lipped. Because they'd been arguing about who's the greatest. You know, Peter's like, I've got to be the greatest. My name's first in the song, right? Peter called them, Jesus, Peter called them. Jesus called them one by one, Peter, you know, Andrew, James, and John. James and John, of course, they're going to go to their mother and say, would you please go and ask Jesus to let one of us sit on the right and one on the left? In other words, vice president, secretary of state. I mean, they're constantly vying for positions of influence. And so Jesus is like, really, guys? That's what you think this kingdom is all about? And so Jesus takes a little child, a little child, places the child in their midst, and then says this, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself or herself. That's a haunting word. It's a haunting word to me. I don't know about to you. Because I've struggled. I've struggled with that very issue of pride throughout my my life. I don't know if that's because I was a second-born child, you know. I don't don't know if it's because I just tend to, you know, struggle sometimes with my self-worth. I don't know. I'm confessing. But, But pride's been an issue. And so when I hear Jesus saying, if you want to be great, you need to humble yourself. It's one that strikes and cuts me deeply, and it needs to. And so Jesus turns. But one of the things that's fascinating about this is that Jesus, and by the way, I love the message and the way it it, uh, translates it. Uh, Eugene Peterson says, I'm telling you once and for all that unless you return to square one and start over like children. And that's the point he's trying to make. You're not even going to get a look at the kingdom, let alone get in. Whoever becomes simple and elemental again, like this child, will rank high in God's kingdom. The problem Jesus is running into is that the apostles are not listening to him. You know that. I mean, Peter makes the good confession and then turns right around and rebukes Jesus when he said he's got to go suffer and die. I mean, rebukes Jesus of all things. And so Jesus says, guys, y'all, y'all have got to step back and you've got to become like a little child who's willing to listen and to be humble. Humility is the first characteristic of greatness. And I'm number one in needing to learn this lesson. I'm just going to confess to you. It's tough. He, he goes on and he talks about whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And then he makes a transition. And you've got to see this transition in verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones. Now, for Matthew, that's a phrase that he uses to describe new followers of his. I want you to notice back in chapter 10. Whoever gives one of these little ones. He's not talking about children. He's talking about brand new disciples. Notice, even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple. 
He's not talking about four and five-year-olds. He's talking about people who are new to the faith. They're spiritual infants. And, and he says, listen, as the people of God, it's those just coming to faith in Jesus that needs to be first and foremost on our radar. And we've got to make sure we do not do anything that blocks them from becoming part of the kingdom of God. Notice what he says. Whoever receives one such, uh, such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones, one of these children of faith, who believe in me to sin. Now, I don't like the ESV's translation here. Rodney, it's not a harmatia at all. It's the word we get our word scandal from, scandal on. And, and it's the verb form of it. And, and it literally means, here's other translations, to fall, to stumble, to fall away, to scandalize. That's the literal transliteration of the word. Cause the downfall, mislead, put a stumbling block, trip up, lead astray. All of these are translations of this word. But look at the last one. Loses faith. That's what Jesus is talking about. Do, do we do something where someone is brand new? They're just beginning to believe in Jesus. And then we do something that caused them to turn away, to fall away, to, to, to have that faith that's just starting to grow for it to die. That's what Jesus is talking about. And he says, listen, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. I mean, put it in you know, modern language. I mean, it'd be better for you to have chains put on your legs and concrete blocks at the bottom and you dropped in Old Hickory Lake. I mean, I don't know about you, but that has always just kind of given me chills. That's not a good image. And Jesus says, but it'd be better for you for that to happen than for you to put a stumbling block, to put something in the way of someone of faith. The NIV gets it right. Notice how they do verse 7. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. That's what he's talking about. Because sometimes, you know, you're like, well, I didn't, I didn't sin against them. I just wasn't friendly. Yeah. Or, or I, I just reacted maybe rudely. Yeah. I mean, you think about all the things that we can do that unfortunately is offensive to people. Uh, let me tell you one that I have been guilty of. I don't mean to. But I don't know how many times over the years I've had people to come up to me and say, is there something wrong between us? And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And they'll say, well, the other day you walked past me right, I mean, right down the aisle and, and I spoke to you and you didn't speak to me. I mean, are you ignoring me? And I've said to people, I am so sorry. You see, one of the problems when you're in a role like Blake has or I have or any of us ministers, elders oftentimes as well, is that we've got so much going on up here and, and there's not much capacity to begin with that, that it's hard to remember. People will say to me, can you make this announcement? They'll hand it to me. Folks, I have brought it up to the pulpit, put it on the podium, and still forgotten to announce it. I mean, that happens. Why? Because my mind is racing 90 to nothing on Sunday mornings. And, and, and I just sometimes pass people because I'm thinking about the introduction or I'm thinking about the Sunday school class or I've got something else on my mind, and I'm sorry. I don't mean to do that. But sometimes we do that. I mean, all kinds of ways in which we cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come, oftentimes even ignorantly. 
And so we've got to be aware of these things. Matthew now turns to the personal stumbling blocks. He says, listen, it's not just that you cause other people to stumble. You cause yourself to stumble. And, and he uses it in a really powerful way. He says, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. What's Jesus doing here? He's simply saying, listen, you've got to get serious about this. I mean, our hands, I mean, you know, image here is that you, you're stealing something. Or the image here is you're running away from something. He goes on to talk about the eye and how that if it causes you to stumble. You know, it can be the source of lust oftentimes. That's how lust enters into our lives. I mean, he says all of those different parts of your body, if they cause you to stumble, you need to get rid of them. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire. And again, I don't like the uh, NIV or the ESV on this one. The word is Gehenna. It's that, it's that area there just south of Jerusalem that was where so many of the bodies were dumped during the, the Babylonian captivity and burned and everything. I mean, it's just an image of horror for, for the Jews. And he says, you know, it, it'd be better to be thrown into the lake of fire. I mean, have your eyes done in, instead of for your whole self to be thrown into it. So lesson number two, you need to deal seriously with those stumbling blocks or temptation that causes you or others to lose faith or sin. We've got to get serious about that. And then he turns to the big one. He says, watch that you don't treat a single one of these childlike believers arrogantly. Uh, this is, again, from the message, and I love this translation. Notice, childlike believers, you realize, don't you, that their personal angels are constantly in touch with my heavenly Father, or my Father in heaven. The image is that God... He wants every person to be saved. Everyone. Peter would say, God's not willing for any to perish. None. He wants everybody to come back to Him. And and we as Christians have got to realize that God is so concerned that the angels themselves are working toward trying to bring people to faith. I, I think most of us fail to realize that God wants us saved far more than we want to be saved. I mean, he wants to save so much that he sent Jesus to die and to watch him die. Why? Because he wants you saved and he wants me saved. And when you think about everything that God, Jesus, God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the angels themselves are doing to bring us into relationship with the Father, it should cause us to pause and to ask, are we somehow getting in the way of this? And then he gives an illustration. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray? Does he not leave the ninety and nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Very similar parable to one you have over in Luke's gospel. You have three there, the parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. We call it the prodigal son. Matthew's point, though, is just slightly different. Matthew's simply talking about how precious... How precious that one individual is. And if he finds it, truly, I say, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not. Look at verse 14. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one, just one, of these little ones should perish. Children, of course, children. But he's talking about people of faith. He's talking about newborn Christians whether they're 12 years old or 15 years old or 95 years old. He's not wanting a single one to perish. 
And boy, lesson three is so important. No one is expendable. Which should cause all of us to realize that we have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not just the role of preachers or ministers or elders or deacons or Sunday school teachers. It's anybody who has a relationship with someone that you you think, you know what, I don't know that, that they're living for God anymore. I don't know if they've left the flock and they're out there in the world on their own. It's time that we go after them. And Jesus is saying, listen, you guys have got to do the best you can. Now, are we going to save all of them? No. Jesus knows that. He'll talk about that in that last fifth of his big blocks of teaching. People's faith grow cold. They, they do turn away. They fall away. But it doesn't mean that we let it go without at least doing the best we can to keep it from happening. And so if your brother sins against you, I love what he does here. He says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. He, he, he's going to take away both sides of the excuse. You know, somebody offends me, what do I do? I go to them. I offend someone, what do I do? Matthew 5 says, you go to them. In other words, there's no getting out of, of the challenge we have when we are at odds with a brother and sister in Christ. I mean, basically what Jesus is saying is, listen, if you've offended, you leave your, alt, your gift at the altar and you go. And then the other person, if they've been offended, you go, just you. You go to the brother. And the aim is, here I am, I've done the offense, back there is the brother I've offended, and guess what? We meet in the middle. He's coming to see me. I'm going to see him. Why? Because our relationship is too important to let anything tear it apart. So he says, we've got to get serious about this. And if he doesn't listen, what do you do? You take one or two others with you. I like what Jerry Barber says. Jerry's been a longtime friend for many, many years. But Jerry talks about this and he says, you don't take someone who's on your side. You know, we all can get somebody who's on our side, right? He says, what you do is you take someone who's also friends with the other person. Someone who can be fair and neutral and can who give fair judgment. I mean, I know that takes a lot of hard work to find someone like that. See, it's easy to find someone who's on my side. It's a little bit more challenging to find someone that both the person who's offended me or who I've offended, you know, that they respect both of them. But he says, you take both of them so that every charge may be established. In other words... These people can be fair and honest judges of what's going on between the two brothers or two sisters. And then if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Go to the congregation. Go to the synagogue in Jesus' day, church in our day. And if he refuses to listen to the church, then guess what? For at least for the Jews, he's like a Gentile and a tax collector. He's someone who stepped outside the boundaries. You let him step outside the boundaries. But it's not because you've not put forth every effort to be reconciled. Here's what Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't say, if a brother offends you, you go talk about him. He didn't say, you, you, you pull an elder aside and say, you ain't going to believe what sister so-and-so said to me or what brother so-and-so said to me. You don't hop on your cell phone, you call up a friend and say, you're just not going to believe what happened to me today and how mean this person was to me. You see, that's our natural response. 
our natural response is to vent to someone else instead of trying to be reconciled to the person we've had the conflict with. And, and so Jesus is sitting in there saying, listen, guys, ladies, it's going to be tough being my people. And so you've got to get serious about reconciliation. And listen, Brian Shepherd can tell you all day how difficult it is sometimes. I mean, especially when you get between husbands and wives. But it's possible. And we need to take the teachings of Jesus seriously. Reconciliation is everything. It's not necessarily always possible. I mean, sometimes they refuse to be reconciled and you have to say, okay, you know, I'll put the ball in your court. If you ever want to come back and talk, I'm here for you. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound on uh, or bound uh, on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The point that Jesus is making here is simply that when we as the people of God are trying to do the work of reconciliation, which is the ministry of Jesus, heaven itself is on our side. It's working with us. He goes on, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, and this is not, y'all, okay, Stan, I think me and you need a boat. You agree? Yes, I agree. Let's pray to God. God's going to give us a boat. No, no, that's not the point. The point here is about reconciliation. He says, here's what you need to realize, is that when you're working together to heal the body of Christ, no one wants it more than God himself. And God's going to respond. Now, God's not going to override free will. Again, some people can say, I'm not being reconciled. And the church has to say, okay. You know, you can, you can be like a tax collector or a Gentile. But God is always working on the side of reconciliation. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there. God is there. By the way, this is true when it snows five inches and three people show up at church. Okay? That's when I always hear this verse quoted. But that's not what it's talking about. The verse is talking about reconciliation and how serious God is about it. And so Peter ends this chapter by raising a question about forgiveness. You see, Peter and Andrew and James and John and all these other guys had gone to synagogue. And they had heard the rabbis teach. And when it came to the subject, the rabbis, the rabbis generally taught that if someone, you know, offends you, you can forgive them. In fact, you can forgive them up to three times. But the third time, after the third time, no. And so when Peter comes to Jesus, he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. In other words, Peter's sitting there in his mind going, I tell you what, I'm going to impress Jesus. I want to take what the rabbis say, and I'm going to double it, and then add an extra one to it. I'm going to make it a perfect number seven, and surely Jesus will be impressed by my ability to forgive. So can I forgive as many as seven times? And of course, the attitude is, is that somebody offends you, and they say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And then they offend you again, and you say, and they say, I'm sorry, and you forgive them. You know, after a few times, we tend to look at them and say what? They're not sorry. You know, if June was sorry, she wouldn't keep doing it, right? Boy, how's that work in marriage? I mean, does that work for y'all in marriage? I know it doesn't for me, you know. Can, can I tell y'all something about my sweet wife? Where's she at? June, where are you sitting at? Is she in here? I know she's in here. I'm looking for her and I can't find her. Oh, there she is. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, 
one of the things that I do, and, and Mike Ryan's in here somewhere, Mike can relate to this. Does this bother any of y'all? Just tapping? Just incessantly tapping? I mean, even if it's real quiet? Yeah, I'll put it down here close. I get in the car and June's driving and I just start tapping. I don't know why. My finger just does it. And June looks at me and she says, you've got to stop that. You're going to cause me to wreck. And, and, and here's the problem. I don't care how many times she's told me that. This is just a tapping finger. It just does it. Y'all, I know it bothers her. And I don't mean to. Last night, we're going, or not last night, not for last, we're going to eat for my Father's Day. We're driving down, she glances over. I know what's going on. My finger's moving. And I'm doing that, and I go, okay, you know. Jesus says, not seven times, but even up to 77 times. We sometimes translate it 70 times seven. But the point he's making is going all the way back to Cain. God said, whoever harms Cain, I'm going to avenge seven times. Lamech came along and said, if Cain is avenged seven times, I'm going to be a 77-fold times. In other words, 77 times. And, And basically, Jesus says, just as much as vengeance takes place in the world, so forgiveness needs to take place. And by the way, if you're counting and you've got up to 78, and you're like, sorry... You're not understanding what Jesus is saying. We need to be a forgiving people. He said the kingdom of heaven is like a king who who wished to settle accounts and he brought a servant in who owed him 10,000 talents. By the way, 10,000 talents simply means more than one could ever repay. Some translations put millions, some put hundreds of thousands. It doesn't make any difference. The point is the person couldn't pay on minimum wage how much he owed the master. And so the master ordered for him to be sold, his wife and children. That's the way you dealt with debt in the first century. You were sold as, as kind of an indentured servant, a slave, until you paid it off. And, and, and the servant fell on his knees and, and said, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And of course, the, the king knew he couldn't do that. But the king had pity on him and, and forgave him the debt. You know, hey, I'm forgiving you the debt. But then Jesus says, this very servant went out and found a guy who owed him a hundred denarii. Denarii is how much you make in a day. So this is a hundred days wages. Several thousand dollars, but not millions, not hundreds of thousands. I mean, it's, you know, how much a car would buy or would cost or a truck would cost today. And he says, that's how much he owed. And he came up to him and notice what he said. He seized him by the neck. He began to choke him. Pay me what you owe me. And the guy himself began to plead with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he could have. Over time, he could have paid the debt. But the servant refused, had him thrown into prison until he could pay everything back. In other words, you're going you're to be an indentured servant until you pay everything. And when the other fellow servants saw this, they went back to the master and reported to him. And the master called him in. And basically says, I can't believe what you've done. I forgave you of your debt, but you can't forgive your fellow servant of his debt. And the point simply, and you you all know it, Jesus forgiven me far more 
far more. Thousands, millions of times more than any sin anyone else has sinned against me. Same is true of you. And Jesus says, you've got to forgive one another. Because it's all about reconciliation, healing, forgiveness. It's all about being my people who follow my ways. And so he threw the first servant into prison until he could pay off his debt, which, of course, he never could. You can read between the lines on that one. Lesson five, our forgiveness of others will never compare to how much God has forgiven us. So we had better be willing to forgive others as well. And so this week, let me challenge you with these things. Number one, pray for a childlike faith. Pray for humility. I know I need to. Number two, are there stumbling blocks you need to remove from your life? Whether stumbling blocks you're putting in front of others or you're putting in front of yourself. What stumbling blocks do you need to remove? Number three, pray for and reach out to someone specifically that needs to come back to Jesus. If you know of someone that used to sit in the pew beside you, who's no longer a part of the kingdom of God, give them a phone call. Meet them for lunch. Ask them, hey, what could I do? Is there any way I can, I can restore you to the faith you once had? And number four, with whom do you need to be reconciled? Is there someone you've offended? Someone that's offended you? It's time to meet them halfway. Would you do that? Because I tell you, that's what makes the church the true people of God. Our elders are going to be going to the sides of the walls. They'll also be upstairs, and they'll be in the back foyer back there. If you have a need, if you need someone to pray with you, if you'd like to be baptized, and you want to set that up, they'll be glad to arrange that. You can do that. I'll be up here as well. Uh, Jen and I are going to be greeting right back here after our singing. We would love to meet our guests today if, if you would like to come out and introduce yourself. But whatever your need is, once you come, let's go. We stand and sing.